We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis. Our sermon this morning is coming from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 to 11. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Amen. You may be seated. Well, do go ahead and keep the Bible open at Genesis chapter 37. That's what we'll be looking at this morning, the story of Joseph. As it begins, the generations of Jacob, the family story of Jacob and uh, his children, and prominent in that is Joseph. In recent years, it's been popular to have musicals of historical figures. Uh, It was a very popular New York musical that I think has either come to Chicago or will come to Chicago soon. Some years ago, there was a musical of uh, Joseph, the story of Joseph, and uh, it was pretty popular for a while. It may still be out there somewhere or other in some nether regions of musical life. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. And in that uh, story, Joseph is uh, introduced for us as, of course, the main character of that musical and indeed the main character of the next few chapters of uh, this book of Genesis, uh, Joseph is introduced for us as uh, singing a song, and he um, describes himself in this way, and I won't attempt to sing, you'll be glad to know. He says, uh, or sings, uh, but uh, I'll just say it, he says, I'm handsome, I'm smart, I'm a walking work of art. And he sort of prances around like this, you know. Well, is that the right interpretation of this story? And how are we to discover? 
Is Joseph indeed that kind of slightly, well, perhaps not slightly, extremely ambitious individual young man who is pruning his feathers and presenting himself to everyone else, whatever their feelings may be, whatever their ambitions may be? I'm handsome, I'm smart, I'm a walking work of art. But then we have to ask ourselves, what about the other characters in the story? What about his dad, Jacob? Who, as a father, would actually treat uh, their children in the way that uh, he does, singling out one of them for this kind of treatment? Our family just got back from um, taking, like many of you probably have, a couple of days spring break. And there was a discussion in our family as to where we would go. I quite liked the idea of finding a nice little cabin in the middle of nowhere and it being really quiet and reading a good book. I got outvoted. <laughs> and we went to the Dells, <laughs> which is a little bit different. And as I was sitting there trying not to be sort of, you know, snooty about the Dells, I did observe many different families as they were bouncing down the water slides and how they interacted with each other. Some of the family interactions were anything but good. One dad, I observed, singled out his son, who had obviously done something wrong, and gave him a tongue lashing you would not believe in front of everyone else where this poor young man had to receive it with his siblings around him and me watching on, trying not to look like I was watching too much. Past, as a pastor, I was on the verge of intervening, saying, what are you doing? You're damaging this kid for years. Well, Jacob did not do that. He did the absolute opposite. He picked out Joseph and exalted him above his brothers. Now, Jacob doesn't turn out too well in this story either. But then there are the brothers. And as the story carries on, they actually sell their brother into slavery, which is hardly an idyllic kind of sibling relationship. It would make its way onto some rather outrageous daytime talk shows as an example of the kind of thing not to do in family life. You can imagine the talk show host saying, tell me about the time when you sold your brother into slavery so everyone could hear. Clearly there are these characters in the story, and as we get into it, we have to figure out what is the right interpretation. It's fascinating when you look through the interpretation of this passage down through church history and how that interpretation has been glossed or shifted by the current fashion of parental theory. Back in the ancient interpretive commentaries, you'll find people actually defending Jacob for how he treated Joseph. Does not the dad have the right to pick out which one of his sons is most worthy of honor? You won't find that around anymore. How are we to interpret this? Well, let's look at these three different sets of characters that are 
right embedded in the story. And at the end, there's one other character, a little hidden, but most important. So first, there is Joseph. Uh, Joseph is uh, 17. He's a teenager. He's at the age of dreaming. He is, um, in all likelihood, given the family dynamics of his uh, uh, father with uh, two wives and a clear argument between different parts of the family and lots of older brothers, he's probably likely to have felt somewhat estranged from his brothers anyway. Charles Spurgeon says this, I have noticed how often God looks with eyes of special love upon those in a family who seem least likely to be so regarded. It was a Joseph whom his brothers hated. It was upon the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers that God's electing love descended. Perhaps you feel like that in your family sometimes. You're the youngest, or almost the youngest, as Joseph was. And you feel like you've been looked over for blessing. Perhaps you can resonate with how Joseph behaved when he was given an opportunity to push himself to the head of the line. Finally! We can resonate with his feelings for sure. But then Joseph, we're told, brought a bad report to his father about uh, his, uh, his brothers. There's a little bit of a history of interpretation here as well. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, uh, of, of the Old Testament, suggests, though it's not really quite clear there, suggests that actually it was the brothers who brought a bad report about Joseph, though the Hebrew is, as we have it translated here, that Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers, indicating the unease that interpreters have felt down through the years to give Joseph any kind of bad interpretive grid in their teaching of the passage. But no, it seems pretty clear that Joseph did bring a bad report to his father about his brothers. It's quite possible that Joseph was playing up his advantage with his father, who already, we're told, favored him, by whispering ill news into the ready ears of his dad, already predisposed to believe that Joseph could do no wrong. And anything bad that happened must be the fault of one or the other of his children, the less favored children. Actually, this um, phrase, ill report or bad news, is used in the Bible later when um, the spies go into the land. And those who bring back a negative interpretation of the promised land are not predisposed to believe that God will give them the land. We're told to bring, same phrase, a bad report. It's a sort of slander. It is possible that uh, Joseph took perhaps a negative event in which his brothers were involved 
and magnified it to the maximum possible, or it's possible that he took an entirely innocent circumstance, even a good thing, like with the promised land, and made it look woeful in the eyes of his father. And here immediately is an application. If he did behave that way, he is not the first nor the last to use the blunt instrument of gossip to gain an advantage over peers. The office gossip is not only being malicious, he or she is enacting a deliberate strategy, often deliberate, perhaps not always, but a strategy to cast their competitors for work in a negative light. So the boss now looks at all their work through a malicious lens, a bad report. What is more, Joseph was surely, at the very least, unwise in the way he reported his dreams, too. Now, he was 17, and 17, as I said, is the age of dreaming. He was an ambitious young man, probably rather gifted. And after all, he did a good job of running the whole of Egypt. He must have had some natural capacities. He probably somewhere inside knew he could run a country. And when the dreams came to him, they resonated with his internal sense of capacity. But he was unwise with how he reported those dreams, was he not? Did he need to set up a um, soapbox and stand on it and uh, tell his brothers just how exalted he had been in his dreams? If indeed that interpretation is the right one of those dreams. He seemed to think at this stage that it was, that he will be lifted up and they will be pushed down. But later in this Jacob story of the family, which Joseph is the prominent character, Joseph has a rather different interpretation of those dreams. When finally he is premier of Egypt and his brothers do bow before him, Joseph then responds, not with, oh yeah, quite right, you should be bowing before me. He responds by saying, am I in place of God? Not just a more tactful approach, a more theological approach. Joseph was not there for his own exaltation, but for the exaltation of another. But here at 17, he could not grasp that, or at least he did not have the wisdom to express it correctly. Here in his youthful ambition, his eager zeal spilled over into at least unwise provocation, if not a sort of flagrant waving of a red rag before the young it's slightly older than him, but the bulls of his brothers. Did he not realize that they also had their own ambitions? What were their dreams? He did not appear to even ask himself that question. So there is Joseph. <laughs> but 
then is that really what the story is about? That kind of moral lesson about Joseph? Or is it about Jacob? After all, as uh, we said at the beginning, who on earth would be so foolish as a father to single out one of his children for a special gift and not give anything to the others? Can you imagine that Christmas? Yes, uh, it's Christmas Eve, everyone's gathered around the, um, the tree, or it's Christmas uh, morning, and yeah, we've all got gifts. No, actually, we don't. Only Joseph has a gift. Isn't he wonderful? But it was not just a gift. It was a gift with deep symbolism. Whether it was multicolored, as it's traditionally translated and is here in our version, or a robe of particularly long sleeves, we don't quite know. But what we do know, before this phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible, this, of this, this kind of garment, what we do know is that it was indicative of a royal person. He, as it were, gave him a crown. Or he uh, put him in um, sort of presidential limousine while his brothers uh, had to cycle past in their um, bicycles. He had a presidential suit on while his brothers had to go around in Walmart jeans. It's a none too subtle indicator where his loyalties and his love lay. What's more, we do not meet Jacob uh, rebuking uh, Joseph for his first dream about his brothers. Oh, he rebukes him later when he dreams uh, about uh, the, the second dream, and uh, he rebukes him for sort of sharing that in a way that seemed to give him prominence over his parents. But there's no record here of him being rebuked for trying to get prominence over his brothers. He loved Joseph, but his love was most unwise, if not actually selfish. Uh, Chris Austin, the ancient uh, preacher, put it like this. He said, even parental love can do harm to the children. When it is practiced without restraint... It may give the child free reign from an excessive indulgence. In other words, you see, we parents have to be careful that our love for our children is not an expression of what is best for the child, but an expression of what we felt that we missed when we were children. Surely Jacob felt that he had not been sufficiently loved by his own father and indeed had been marginalized by his own father. So to compensate, he picked out the one that he most favored and poured all that frustration into Joseph. It was deeply selfish love and therefore not really love in its full expression. What is that what the story is about? Or is it about um, the brothers? Now, we have to have some sympathy with these brothers. Can you imagine having Joseph wandering around, as it were, saying, I'm handsome, I'm smart, I'm a walking work of art? To be enough to want to clonk in one, wouldn't it? If clonk is a word. 
but you knew what I meant, so that was good. Uh, yeah, there is a lot of empathy here. No wonder they felt jealous. But that emotion of jealousy that we can empathize with, they did not seek to remove. It's almost as if they, um, uh, having tasted it, swallowed it. They nurtured it until it became hate. It's hard to blame them for the initial emotion, but it is pretty easy to blame them for allowing that emotion to stew until they hated their brother. And indeed, as the story goes on to say, sold him into slavery. Uh, They um, clearly take on Joseph and tell him off for, for, for this, but there's no record of them going to their father to ask him to deal with the matter, which would have been a better approach, I think. Jealousy. The blessing of God in Genesis chapter 1 that had been spurned by Adam and Eve and then left to the murderous fraternal relationship of Cain and Abel and was now about to have another bitter root of hatred. And if not murder, being sold into slavery. You know, no one comes out looking very good, do they? And certainly there's a lot of moral application to work with here as a preacher. Uh, Oswald uh, Chambers put it like this. He said, sanctification is not my idea of what I want God to do for me. Sanctification is God's idea of what he wants to do in me. It would be easy, wouldn't it? And I think right at one level to preach this text in terms of that moral framework alone, though I think there is more. But the moral application is very clear in all sorts of ways. Parents, do not selfishly pour out your affection on your children in such a way that you're Allowing for jealousy to breed within the family. Bible study leaders, with your Bible study group, do not exalt one above the other and allow jealousy and envy to emerge. If you're called to lead, you're called to love. Young men, with youthful zeal, even perhaps for God, and for his kingdom, and for the the glories of Christ, and perhaps very gifted. Remember, there are other people. (laughs) There are other people in the kingdom. And your ambition is to be tempered not only by serving Christ, but by doing it in community in the church, with other people sometimes having prominence. And those of us, all of us, who at times think, uh, I wish I was like that celebrity. I wish I was on TV. I I I wish my blog had not, you know, 
500 followers, but 15, 20,000 like X well-known person. And we find within us a, um, an envy. And of course, the back of that envy is pride. The pride that says, what well, I should be there. There's a lot of moral application here. But as I say, there is one other character in this story. He goes unnamed in the narrative, but he is behind it all. Not the dreamer, but the dream giver. Actually, the story indicates that even Jacob began to lean in towards this interpretation at the end. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of Joseph, but his father kept the saying in mind, or literally watched for the word kept, mulled over, protected, watched for the word. Jacob, you'll remember, had been a dreamer himself. Jacob's ladder, now his son was a dreamer. And he watched for the fulfillment of the word. He kept the saying in mind, what would God do through this dream? What was God's purpose in this dream? Now that is an important question, whether our daydreams, our literal night dreams, or our visions and ambitions. You and I live in a culture where we are constantly urged to have a dream. Dream it, and you can do it. We live in a culture that is embossed with the idea of the American dream. We live in a culture which is known for its movies that come mostly out of Hollywood called sometimes the Dream Factory. We have been told over and over and over again, you've got to have a dream, for if you don't have a dream, how can that dream come true? We are Joseph's. Every single one of us. But are we watching for the word? For Joseph's dream was fulfilled, but not at all as he had expected. The story would carry on. The dreams would be fulfilled... Not as Joseph or Jacob or the brothers thought, but exactly as the Word, as God, as the dream giver intended. Yeah, God took the jealousy, the favoritism, the prideful ambition even, 
and nailed it to a cross. Very famously, at the end of this story, Joseph with his brothers in front of him who are deeply anxious as to whether Joseph would now exact revenge over what they have done, they come to him and then Joseph says this, don't be frightened, you planned it for evil, but God planned it for good, for that which is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. The evil with God's good purpose Nailed, finally, ultimately, to the only place that can discover its fulfillment, that is at the cross, for the salvation of many lives. Joseph thought that it was about him. He, he, thought, he thought he was the mirrored reflection that everyone would stare into, and he did not realize that he was merely a lens through which they were to see finally Christ. See, in our fallenness, in our depravity, our dreams, our ambitions are inevitably tainted with selfishness, if not worse at times. And yet at the same level, we are in the image of God. And even the fact of our desire for a better future is hardwired into the human condition, utilized by the Spirit to speak of a better world, a better dream, a better Joseph. And perhaps you're not yet a Christian here this morning, and you're saying to yourself, you know, to dream of a castle in the air does not mean that that castle exists. Well, of course not. But such desire for eternity, for glory, for joy, for peace, for relationship with a divine being, such desires do mean that if you have an appetite without a fulfillment, without a fulfillment, it is as irrational, does not make sense, as saying that a man thirsts, but there is no water in existence. The profoundest theologians have long, long realized this aspect of human nature. John Calvin put it like this at the beginning of his institutes. He said, no man or woman can survey himself without his thoughts turning to the God in whom he lives and moves. Perhaps you're here this morning for exactly that realization, that what you've been dreaming about, what you've been hoping for, what you've been longing for is fulfilled in no other place than in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the dream, the the dream of materialistic achievement, the the dream of the the perfect family, the dream of looking good and being smart and being a living work of art is actually too small, far too small, infinitely too small. And God has something infinitely better for you. Take that desire to its final fulfillment in the infinitude of the divine being himself.
I'll guarantee you this. You will not be disappointed. Perhaps though many of us here are already followers of Jesus. And we too have ambitions and desires and want to do something for Jesus. And how do we place these things within the economy of God's kingdom? I love what Hudson Taylor said. Dream a dream so big that unless God intervenes, it will fail. Of course, that dream might not come about as you think, as it didn't for Joseph, who went to jail, and for Jesus, who died before he rose again. And the pattern of the cross is the pattern of the disciple. Uh, there was a, uh, a guard, uh, a Saddam Hussein guard, soldier, who had in his role as one of Saddam Hussein's uh, personal guards seen horrible things, grotesque things, and inevitably this has impacted his psyche, his soul, and was uh, deeply suicidal. A Christian knew him and gave him a copy of one of the Gospels, John's Gospel. This uh, Saddam Hussein guard ripped up the gospel and threw it away. That evening he had a dream. He dreamt of Jesus, that truer, better Joseph. And Jesus saying to him, what would you do to me? And as the dream went on, he saw Jesus on the cross and Jesus looking at him and saying, I did this for you. He became a disciple of Jesus, a little pastor of 50 or so people. He was then thrown in jail. A Christian leader went to visit him and the former Saddam saying, God said to him in God's providence, I'm now in jail and I have an audience not of 50 but 300 who listened as we study the Bible together. That too is the dream, for it comes at great cost. By faith we see the glory to which thou shalt restore us. The world despises for that high prize Christ has set before us. And if thou counts us worthy, we each shall see thee stand at God's right hand to take us to heaven. Christ and the kingdom, the city on a hill, the kingdom of God. Not to us be glory given, but to him who reigns above. Glory to the God of heaven for his faithfulness and love. What, though unbelieving voices hear no word and see no sign, still in God my heart rejoices, working out his will divine. Let us pray. Lord, we take our uh, ambitions and lay them at your feet. Perhaps uh, since we were young, we have been told that uh, we are special. We can do anything we like. 
And perhaps it has not turned out that way. Perhaps uh, we feel that we have been looked over and others have been picked for the team, for the leadership position, for the ministry opportunity, for the um, business to be on the board. And if we're honest, envy rises up. Perhaps um, we felt as a child that we were overlooked, and now as a parent, our temptation is to pick out a child and pour into one of them all that we lacked, ignoring the needs of the others. Although this passage is so descriptive of the human condition, what other explanation can we give other than that it is inspired, written so long ago? It um, reads us as we read it. And uh, Lord, we confess that we are like Joseph sometimes and like Jacob sometimes and like the brothers sometimes. And we are sorry. But Lord, in this passage, there is more than simply a moral lesson. There is a redemption. It is that word, that gospel that we look for and want to be a part of and want to dream big dreams about. Even, Lord, strengthen us, though it cost us much. For the disciple is not above the master and it cost you much. And so we rest in your presence, glad of your leading and guiding. Rejoice in the peace that you give us and the victory that we in you will one day enjoy in all its fulfillment and fullness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.